Welcome to New Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS. My name is Katherine Talcott and I practice at Kuala Institute Cleveland Clinic. I'm joined today by Kyle Kovacs from Cornell in New York City. Hi Kat, great to be here. Thanks for coming. And Rebecca Suarez from Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. Thanks for having me. Great. So today we're gonna to be discussing a paper entitled Impact of Retina Fluid-Free Months on Outcomes in Neovascular AMD by David Eichenbaum et al. Um, that was printed in Retina in February of this year. Kyle, do you mind summarizing the paper for us? Sure. Um, so the Hawk and Harrier studies, which this paper is uh, sort of covering, were phase three pivotal trials examining the safety and efficacy of berlocizumab for the treatment of neovascular AMD. The comparison arm was with a flibercept, and as a reminder, the study was designed with three monthly loading doses followed by Q8-week flibercept with either Q12 or Q8-week brolicizumab. The fluid status in Hawk and Harrier was assessed monthly, and in this analysis of the Hawk and Harrier studies, researchers grouped patients into five categories based on how many fluid-free visits, which is a big term we'll come back to multiple times, they experienced during the study. And then they also described the nature of the residual fluid status. And it's worth noting that for this study, this was a pooled analysis of all the patients in the Hawk and Harrier, regardless of what medication they were receiving. So the fluid-free visit was defined in three different ways for the study. So either one, they had no intraretinal fluid or subretinal fluid, no intraretinal fluid, with or without subretinal fluid, and no subretinal fluid with or without intraretinal fluid. The first eligible visit to be categorized as a fluid-free visit was after the loading phase, so after those first three injections. Patients were then placed into categories based on increments of seven, so how many, what number of fluid-free visits. So category one meant that they were never dry. They had zero fluid-free visits. Category two, they had between one and seven fluid-free visits. Category three, they had between eight and 14 fluid-free visits. Category four, 15 to 21 fluid-free visits. And category five, always dry, 22 fluid-free visits. Their endpoints were the number of fluid-free visits, the change in the best corrected visual acuity from baseline, and the change of central subfield thickness from baseline. That was a, a whole lot, so I apologize, but it's kind of integral for the rest of it. Their findings here uh, was that the largest cohort of patients was in category four, so those that had predominantly fluid-free visits, and that represented the bulk of their patients, 39 to 43%. When fluid-free visits were defined as interretinal fluid always being negative, 37% of patients were in category five, as opposed to having both intraretinal fluid and subretinal fluid negative, in which case 6% of patients were in category one, which was never dry. It's tough to keep it all together, I know. The largest change in best corrective visual acuity occurred in categories four and five. So the best improvement were in the dry categories. The least change in best corrective visual acuity occurred in categories one and two. The largest change in the central retinal thickness occurred in categories four and five, again, the dry ones, and then the least change in the central thickness in categories one, two, and three, the, the persistent fluid categories. Conclusion, the authors found that patients with more than 15 fluid-free visits performed significantly better in terms of their vision gained from baseline, their retinal thickness improvements compared with those patients who had persistent fluid at more visits. 
And the idea of variability in central retinal thickness, those with persistent fluid had more variable thickness, which correlated with the uh, vision gains. The subgroups of subretinal fluid versus intraretinal fluid analyses seem to indicate that there is less impact of residual subretinal fluid as opposed to residual intraretinal fluid. And again, this was a pooled data analysis across all treatment arms. However, the authors did note a distribution of more patients on berlucizumab in categories four and five, but I would point out that they did not do statistical analysis in this regard. Thanks so much, Kyle, for that really comprehensive um, overview of the paper. I know that there was a lot of analysis that was done, so thanks so much for describing that for us so we could uh, chat about it a little bit more easily. Dr. Suarez, any sort of quick thoughts on the paper? Yeah, um, I think it was a great paper. It kind of uh, assists in our conversation regarding whether or not we can tolerate subretinal fluid in the treatment of wet AMD. Um, it sort of leans towards not tolerating subretinal fluid as much as some of the other studies like the fluid study uh, suggested. I think it is limited. It is a post-hoc analysis. Um, I think the categories that they separate separated into can get a little confusing, but I, I think in general, it helps suggest that regardless of the fluid compartment, fluid-free visits are, are imperative. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's a good paper, a good addition to the literature in this in this sort of debate between can we tolerate SRF or not. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really interesting. It feels like over the past few years, um, depending on which study recently came out or which analysis we came out, this the, the story is changing on um, is fluid good? Is it not good? How much do we tolerate and do we not? So I think this definitely adds to it. Kyle, any thoughts about about that? Yeah, I, I agree that it's a confusing paper with all the categories. As we look at these, the distribution of patients amongst all these categories, when you really look at is is really all over the place. And like, you know, the number of patients in category one is kind of small, that like there were not a lot of patients in the study with persistent fluid compared to, you know, most people were really dry or just, you know, had, had mostly fluid-free visits. And that muck, mucks it up even more uh, when you try to do these uh, analyses between these seemingly somewhat maybe a little bit arbitrary cohorts of, of fluid defined fluid free visits. Um, but I, I think it's it's a nice attempt at a as a um, you know a post hoc analysis. I agree. Um, I, I think that whenever you see a, a paper that has so many different categories and so many different ways of analyzing it, it makes you um, take a closer look at it and try and understand why that was done and what the intention was and if if that's the sort of cover up any anything that's there. All right, uh, let's take a quick break and then we will hear more in depth about this paper on the other side. Welcome back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. Let's get into a longer conversation about the paper that Dr. Kovac summarized in the first part of this episode. Where we left off, we were talking about um, the different categories that the authors used to do this sub-analysis. One of the things that sort of, I was sort of struck by is trying to understand why they chose five different categories of fluid-free visits. And at first glance, it sort of makes sense to sort of break it down. The numbers generally look okay. But then as you, as I sort of took a closer look at the amount of patients in each group, um, you realize that the data is somewhat skewed um, and maybe, you know, maybe think that those selections of different category was done to sort of best take advantage of those patients. I don't know, Kyle, if you had any sort of thoughts about how that analysis was done. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they ended up with a uh, even numbering system, right? That made it by you know time period to be an even distribution, but the patients are not evenly dis distributed amongst. And and uh, I, I'm sure that if you look at like where within those groups people fall, I bet you that they are clustered, you know, even more so in certain areas. And and there is probably some added benefit to having the um, groups thresholded exactly where they are that gets sort of a little bit of distribution that gives them a more statistical power but that's a very cynical take on on the the, the bracketing here but it, it it still allows for some analysis that may be less accessible probably if it if it wasn't for the you know existence of these buckets or thresholds here I think one positive outlook on on why they bucketed the way they did is if you just look at the the uh, naming of each category I think when a when a general physician looks at this, um, you kind of think of, okay, my patients sort of fall into one of five categories. There are patients who are never dry. There are patients who are always dry. And then there's patients kind of on that spectrum, almost like a Likert scale. So I think from that perspective, if you don't look at the number of patients per bucket, that sort of makes sense from a colloquial standpoint. But then again, like you mentioned, it sort of distributes it a little funny when you look at actual patient numbers. So perhaps they could still have had the same categories, the same five Likert categories, but then just distributed it evenly by patient rather than by number of visits. And that might have been um, a, a more uh, statistically thorough way to, to do it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And then the funny thing is on top of it, it gets even more complicated because beyond having those five different categories, you could analyze it in three different ways, right? If they didn't have any intraretinal fluid, if they didn't have any subretinal fluid, or if you couldn't have either. So there's like all these different layers because I was trying to read the different um, tables and graphs in the paper. There's some statistician who spent quite a long time analyzing all these groups and hopefully got his, his due credit or his or her due credit for every all for all the work that they put into the paper. One, um, one positive, one strength of the paper that I thought compared to some of the other fluid analysis papers um, was that, you know, I think they mentioned it in their discussion as well. A lot of the other uh, papers on whether or not subretinal fluid is tolerable are more cross-sectional analyses, which really pair the anatomic and morphologic structure of fluid to um, visual outcomes. So it's more of like a cross-sectional you know, look at fluid. And this is more of a dose-dependent sort of um, uh, kind of comprehensive look at fluid over the number of visits that a patient has. And I think as a clinician, that's the way that I think of it more as, you know, how many visits is this patient having that they're having fluid as opposed to, oh, now they have, you know, this central amount of fluid. And, and so is that going to immediately affect their visual acuity? I think it's that dose-dependent response as a clinician that I really think about. So that's one other, you know, strength of the way that they designed the paper. I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of attention paid over the past couple of years to, you know, how bad is interretinal fluid? And especially more, how bad is subretinal fluid? Is it good? Is it not good? How much should we tolerate? But then there's also been a lot of papers looking at sort of volatility of fluid and sort of the visual outcomes that are associated mm -hmm. with this. And I think their metric is somehow bringing those two together, you know, in a way that sort of um, makes sense from a clinician perspective, right? You know, you see a patient, they're either dry or they're not dry. And that's the terms we use with our patients and we use when we're thinking about it. So maybe this is a different way of thinking about it that actually brings those two things together. 
Yeah, I totally agree with both of you. And, it's, and Rebecca, that, that um, you know, the longitudinal nature of it, I think, is a better reflection of our practice as opposed to the cross-sectional, what do you do with a single data point? Well, no, we're following our patients longitudinally. These are cumulative decisions that we're making and having some, some sort of data to help guide our, you know, negotiations with the patient sitting in front of us, I think is really valuable. This is, you know, a clinical trial, you know, we, we all know doesn't reflect the real world practice. There's lots of studies saying that we undertreat our patients in the real world. And I don't know about you guys, but I always find that it's a, a negotiation with my AMD patients kind of always negotiating for fewer and farther between, or they have to take a trip and there's always some and so having some data that is better at helping us negotiate those conversations or um, agreements with our patients, um, knowing that we have some safety of what we're able to tolerate, you know, I think is really powerful. So I definitely applaud them for doing this sort of sub-analysis of the different types of fluid. Yeah, I think that's a really sort of good point. And I think... Um... I think, you know, whenever I look at analysis like this, I try and think about how does this actually impact, you know, me in the clinic and seeing patients, how should this change my practice? And I was interested to sort of hear your thoughts about how does this, like, like does this analysis change how you sort of approach patients? Like, obviously, Kyle, like you mentioned, it's, it's complicated and there's a lot of factors at, at bay, but like, like Rebecca, has, like, has this have any impact on sort of how you would approach your AMD patients? I think it actually makes me second guess a little bit um, how I've been approaching my AMD patients. It's, um, you know, I'm I'm a year out of fellowship now, so I, I've taken a lot with me from fellowship. Um, and a lot of my attendings during fellowship really emphasized that, you know, if you can tolerate a little bit of subretinal fluid and it allows you to extend the patient, then perhaps that's a good um, benefit for the patient and improves their compliance and adherence to a long drawn out treatment schedule like we have, um, especially because a lot of my mentors um, were involved with the loss to follow-up studies at Wills. And so um, really, if you can maintain the patient in your clinical practice, I think ultimately that's the, the best outcome for the patient. Um, so you kind of have to, like you were saying before, you kind of have to optimize fluid and adherence. Um, at the same time, I think this changes my mind just a little bit because I think, you know, previously I would take a look at subretinal fluid and it would just be a sliver and be like, ah, don't worry about it at all. But now I'm sort of thinking, okay, well, I think the message is mixed here. I think, you know, you have to weigh the data, but perhaps if there's a way to negotiate with the patient so we can get a little less of that subretinal fluid at each visit, maybe that's a better attitude as opposed to just not caring about subretinal fluid at all. Yeah, I, I think you hit like, it, it strikes both ways, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that we want things to be drier and yet give some data about, well, if they're not dry, there's something that's a little bit more palatable or tolerable. And even though this is a long-term of follow-up, it's still not as long as we follow with some of our patients where we're, we are talking about years and years and years of continued therapy and what's the burden of doing, you know, extensive treatment. So there are different phases of a relationship with a patient where this can guide us in different parts of that, right? Where maybe mm -hmm. earlier on in the disease, we are really striving for more dryness or, you know, or somebody who's later on who, you know, not uncommonly is more in these category three or four patients from this study that has a little bit of recurrent SRF or, and I keep talking about trips because I have one patient that's on my mind. It keeps asking, but I got a trip. It's post COVID. My <laughs> wife and I haven't traveled in six years. 
and we were supposed to go to Italy and we're so healthy and this is our time to go, you know, it's like, well, you should go on your trip, you know, like that there's some complex negotiations that this helps us navigate at all parts of, uh, of patient care. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think it also speaks to the need in our field, although we have great tools in our toolbox for things that are, you know, are excellent at drawing, but have excellent durability too. Um, and sort of potentially, you know, maybe on the horizon, there's treatments that don't require, you know, injections of the same frequency that we give them. But um, thank you so much for both of all of your contributions and discussion points. I think this was great. I want to thank the audience as well for listening to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. And please stay tuned for, for further episodes. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>